Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This past week, because of 4th of July, it was a big grilling week, and obviously everybody should grill everything they want, but there's some top chefs that have gotten together and weighed in on the foods that you should never be grilling. We have the list, and shockingly, burgers and some other big grill staples have made this list. It's all about preserving the fat, and the flavor. We spoke to Kate Crater. She's the food editor at Bloomberg News for the latest Do Not Grill list. Yeah, we found like not one, not two, but three chefs who say burgers should not be put on the grill. Of course, this is America and you get to do what you want and you should grill your burgers if you want, but there's better ways to cook them. And you made the good point there. The reason why people love grilling so much is because you can grill everything. I mean, it's just such right. an open platform. And when you're taking on smoke, you're taking on, uh, you know, if you're grilling with like wood and things like that, it can impart a lot of different flavors. But a lot of these things come down to you want to preserve the fat. And everybody's a fan of cooking on a cast iron pan. So with burgers specifically, that's one of the things uh, you want to preserve the fats. And they say, put it on a griddle, put it on a plancha. The other thing about that, and you're exactly right, that like valuable fat and juices are dripping into the fire and it sizzles and it sounds good, but you're actually losing flavor and juiciness in your burger. And the other thing that's great about it, as you said, Oscar, is like when you have a griddle, you have a really great uniform crust on it. So if you're grilling, you get grill marks, but there's parts that you're missing. So if you want like really a great charred, even surface, you should use like something cast iron, a skillet, a griddle, a plancha, all those work really well. I'm not a professional chef, but I will fight (laughs) to the end to still grill a burger straight on the grill right there. Okay. So another one is peeled shrimp. Uh, Most times people would put them on on a skewer, cook them really quickly on both sides, but there's a lot of danger that comes with that only because shrimp cooks so fast. There's a lot to be said for this list, but this is one people really should pay attention to. Like how many people are going to stop grilling their burgers if they read this story? I don't really know. Right. But people really shouldn't. I mean, first of all, like if you take shrimp out of the shell and it makes it for much more convenient, but you're really like shrimp are delicate. And so if you put them directly on a grill, they're going to burn. They're not going to cook well. Like you want them to be cooked through So the Chef Ford Fry from Atlanta also said shrimps love butter. They love to take a butter bath. So the opposite of that is putting them on like a grill, you know, on like a grill with like high heat direct flames that's going to scorch them and ruin this beautiful seafood that you spent money on. Skinless chicken breasts. I think when people tend to grill these, it's right at the end, you're going to slather a bunch of barbecue sauce all over it. But they say that uh, you shouldn't really be doing that because the texture can turn to rubber right away. My two cents is that you get what you deserve if you're buying skinless, boneless chicken breasts anyway. Everyone should be eating chicken with the skin on. So much more flavor. It's worth like skip dessert, cut your corners somewhere else. But like a 
skinless, boneless chicken breast, do not eat. But if you're going to eat it, you should not put it on the grill because there's very little fat. There's no protection. It's dry to begin with. You're drying it out. It's going to be like a hockey puck, I would say. If you see someone grilling uh, skinless chicken breast, you should stop them. A lot of times when people are grilling chicken anyways, it's usually dark meat. It's usually been marinated already. So there's other mm-hmm. ways to do that. Sausages and thick cut <laughs> bacon. So- now, sausages. This is a good one. I, I know I know the, the casings do tend to burst and, you know, some of it comes out a little bit. You know, and I kind of like that. I don't know. Uh, so sausages, I, I will also say, go ahead and grill away. But bacon, definitely, I can I can attest to. It's just so hard to cook on a grill. It probably will start burning more before you really get a good cook on it. Well, the thing about a sausage is if it's pre-cooked, then you should absolutely grill it. Like, it's great. You know, a pre-cooked sausage that you put on the grill is fantastic. But if it's if it's an uncooked sausage, if you buy, like, a good quality fresh sausage and you think you're going to it, throw it on the grill, it's it's sort of a disaster waiting to happen because it needs to cook all the way through. So if you have high heat, it's going to like sear on the outside. It's still going to be raw in the middle. There's the potential for fireworks if it bursts out of the casing. Oh, so a there's a lot that can go wrong with an uncooked sausage. But cooked sausage, if you have a raw sausage or an uncooked sausage, if you just poach it first, if you just cook it through the way you cook a hot dog on top of the stove and then throw it on your grill, you will be so happy. Top round and bottom round, they say don't go for these. Those are better oven roasted. I would say go with a nice tri-tip instead. Another one on this list is pineapples and peaches. I was just talking about (laughs) possibly grilling some watermelon or something just for like a fresh (laughs) element. I I don't know. And then I saw this thrown on there. Why shouldn't we be doing things like pineapples and peaches? It's just a lot of work. I mean, I think if you're willing to put the work in or if you have a dedicated fruit grill, if you get to live that life, you absolutely should grill your fruit because it can be really good. You know, like grilled pineapple. It caramelizes, but you have to make sure your grill is really clean first because otherwise it's going to pick up like funky meat flavors. Like you don't want to be eating peaches that taste like a pork chop, you know, or a veal chop. Like you don't, you have to start clean it well after you've cooked it because likewise, like you might not want your steak to taste like a peach. That's not where you're usually going when you cook a steak on the grill. (laughs) And then the other thing is depending on the ripeness of the fruit, they can really disintegrate quickly, especially peaches, something like peaches, which when they're really good, they're juicy, they're tender, and they start, you know, they sort of melt in your mouth. That's not good news if you put it on the grill. Kate Crater, food editor at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Oscar, thanks so much. We had some scary news for pet owners this past week. The FDA named 16 brands of dog food that have been linked to a canine heart disease. The FDA isn't suggesting that pet owners stop feeding their dogs some of these brands just yet, but some vets are already advising against giving them grain-free foods. These are foods that are based on peas, lentils, maybe potatoes, so some pretty common stuff, but a lot of times they're coming from smaller pet food manufacturers. We spoke to Rachel Feltman. She's a science editor at Popular Science for what pet owners should know about the latest news from the FDA. When we talk about grains in pet food, they've gotten a reputation for being filler and and being something that our pets don't need or that can even make them sick. And it's true that some brands use so-called grains like potatoes, where those really are just useless filler. But the thing is that there are certain nutrients that dogs need that they can get from healthy grains. A lot of the times that is what is present in these kind of traditional 
dog food. What the FDA is focused on are any kind of like boutique dog food, which is kind of a funny phrase to use, but anything that's from outside of these major longstanding manufacturers. They're looking at things that are grain-free, freshly prepared dog food. You know, we're starting to see startups where people can get dog food in the mail, really anything that is new and comes from a small company is what the FDA is is talking about here. Some of these foods are based with peas and lentils, as you said, potatoes. And the term that vets use for it is boutique exotic ingredient and grain free. So BEG. So that's kind of a term that gets thrown around a lot, BEG foods. And as you were saying, you know, dogs need a certain amount of nutrition. There's very few dogs out there that have grain allergies. Gluten intolerance is really rare in dogs. There's only like one family of inbred Irish setters that is confirmed to have some of this stuff. So there is nothing to suggest that dogs can't have foods with traditional grains. So these are things that are small manufacturers, these boutique style foods. So the FDA hasn't said that you shouldn't stop feeding your dogs this just yet, but what's the correlation? How did this come to be? Why are they investigating these types of foods? It started with some anecdotal gathering of data from veterinarians who noticed and reported that they were seeing higher rates of this particular kind of heart disease, dilated cardiomyopathy, and they were seeing it in breeds that they didn't usually see it in. In purebreds, like in certain breeds like Great Danes and Doberman Pinschers, they have genetic links, you know, as many purebreds have genetic links to some condition or other. But that around the country, at least a few of them started noticing that bulldogs and labs were coming in with these heart problems. And they also noticed that a lot of those patients were on grain-free diets, which is why the FDA started investigating about a year ago. Now, the thing is, for now, it's just a correlation. We see a rise in grain-free food, and we see a rise in these heart problems in dogs that didn't used to have them. But it could just be that grain-free food is getting more popular while something else is causing these heart conditions to increase. It could be that people who are likely to choose grain-free food for their dogs are likely to choose other kinds of products or lifestyles for their dogs that are having an impact. So for now, there's a connection, but we don't know that it's a cause or even that it's actually contributing to it. But the takeaway is that unless your vet has diagnosed your dog with a gluten intolerance or a wheat sensitivity or allergy, which again is is pretty rare, then there's no reason for you to pick grain-free food and there may even be a risk. What should we be looking at when we buy dog food? There's a few different labels that we should be looking at, AAFCO compliant, I guess, uh, you know, they do animal feeding tests and they have like a lot of nutritional information on there. We should be looking for certain things like this to help decide which kind of dog food we're getting. A lot of people have started to associate over-processed dog food with being unhealthy. And, you know, it's true. There are probably lots of brands of dog food that are not great for your dog, but these large manufacturers have put in the kind of nutritional testing to know that dogs are receiving the balance of nutrients that they need. And especially if they've received those certifications you mentioned, then pet owners can feel confident that their pets are getting a balanced meal. 
And the issue with some of these newer brands and, and newer options for dog food is just that the ingredients are often things that haven't traditionally been used in dog food. That might sound appealing to consumers because it looks more like the food they eat and that feels like a more luxurious thing to feed their dog but we don't know how well dogs thrive eating those things. There's also a thing called the Pet Nutrition Alliance. They have a manufacturer report where they ask the manufacturers key questions about their methods and if they employ full-time nutritionists. I mean, those are things you should be looking for. And a lot of times there's just a lot of shiny marketing going on with this stuff. And sometimes just the good, boring, conventional stuff might be best for your dog. Rachel Feltman, science editor at Popular Science. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Here's a fun story to end the week off with. Earlier this week, it was World UFO Day, and there was a new report by a group called SatelliteInternet.com that had listed the states with the most UFO sightings. So if you're interested in spotting some UFOs, you might want to head up north. There's been surveys done that show that people still really believe in life on other planets. In 2016, only 27% of Americans believe that aliens had visited our planet before, In 2018, that number jumped up to 41.4%. My producer, Miranda, joins us for where to spot these UFOs, and also what are the five big observables that UFOs exhibit? Let's first start by talking about what a UFO even is. It's anything in the sky that you can't identify. It's an identified flying object. So in the late 1940s, the Air Force started using that phrase to describe any kind of mysterious aircraft. So when we hear the word UFO, most people think you're talking about Aliens or conspiracies, typically it ends up being identified as a drone or a satellite, even a weather balloon. There are still 5% of UFO reports that don't ever get explained. So, But this is such a thing that people have such strong connections to, Mm -hmm. and they don't even want to believe the explanation when you tell them it's a drone or a (laughs) satellite or something like that. Weather balloon. Yeah, exactly. So the states with the most UFO sightings are Maine, Alaska, Vermont, Montana, and Washington has the most UFOs. And the states with the fewest sightings are Texas, Louisiana, Georgia, Mississippi, and Alabama. So if you want to see a UFO, go to Washington. If you don't want to see a UFO, Go to Texas. Yeah, in the study, they make that clear distinction. Most of the sightings are coming from the north rather than the south. They don't really explain why, but they do say a lot of them were made more in the summer months. You know, it's a lot clearer out. People are actually outside more. So that's another thing. They've done surveys from Chapman University that show how many people believe in intelligent alien life. And that one's pretty interesting. In 2016, it was only 27% of Americans that believed aliens have visited our planet at some point in the past. But in 2018, that number went up. It jumped to 41.4% of people saying that they believe aliens have visited Earth in our ancient past. And so that's a 14 percentage point rise in just the last two years, Oscar. I'm really curious if that has to do with a rise in just more, you know, social media, things on YouTube. You know, you go down that rabbit hole and you start seeing more alien stuff. Well, there's and then you shows, tend to believe it. History Channel, the Ancient shows. Aliens and all right. of that. There's Alien Con that just happened. So what are the tools of the trade? A lot of uh, UFO hunters <laughs> end up using binoculars, night vision goggles, cameras. you got to have a lot of patience and you, you got to look at it. All of, For this study, they use data from the National UFO Reporting Center, their online database, which chronicles sites all over the place. We had mentioned that the Navy was making new guidelines for pilots to report this stuff because they were happening in increasing numbers. And a lot of pilots were fearful that they thought, you know, maybe you'd be a crackpot if you came forward with this. But they wanted to legitimize this because 
The government's been studying this for a long time. And one of the people that headed up this department or the Department of Defense, his name was Luis Elizondo. He's doing some stuff with the History Channel now. He has something called the five observables. These are UFO traits that Navy fighters have seen and it defies their explanation. What are those? So the first one is something called anti-gravity lift. So unlike known aircraft like planes, for example, these objects are sighted overcoming the Earth's gravity with no visible means of propulsion. So they just kind of move suddenly without any kind of sound. But they also don't have any flight surfaces like wings or the propellers of a helicopter. Also, these crafts are sometimes tubular, like they look like a Tic Tac candy. That's why you have that popular saucer-shaped image in your head. Everybody kind of describes them as that sometimes. Smooth, rounded edges, right. They also have sudden and instantaneous acceleration. These objects can go in directions that make no sense that a human pilot could never navigate these G-forces, so it's just physically impossible for them to be moving this way. And you'll see that one radar operator said that they tracked a UFO as it dropped from the sky at more than 30 times the speed of sound. So that's pretty incredible. And that's what you hear a lot about, too, just these unexplainable movements. It really defies the laws of physics. It's like it's impossible for a plane to maneuver that way. Even a helicopter or something, it has to be something more. They described it as projectile like a ping pong ball. They tracked it accelerating from a stopped standing position to traveling 60 miles a minute. Another one is hypersonic velocities without signatures. So like when aircrafts travel faster than the speed of sound, you'll hear the sonic boom, much like with rocket launches and stuff. Most UFO accounts have no sound. And that's kind of part of the evidence to these encounters. This one's interesting. Low observability or cloaking. Part of what makes a UFO an unidentified flying object is that you really can't tell what it is. You can't really always see it. And the last observable is transmedium travel. So this is something that, you know, it can be traveling in the sky, it could be hovering, it could go into the water, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't really impact the movement. It's still moving at super fast speeds. All right. The fun stuff now, Miranda. (laughs) Have you ever witnessed what you thought was a UFO? Twice. Oh, man. Don't think I'm crazy. Uh, I do already. Both times were as an adult. Once I was driving down a popular street in Burbank where I was living at the time and I saw three red dots in the sky all traveling together in like a triangle formation. And they were like hovering above the sky and all of a sudden just kind of zoomed off really fast to the left. Had no idea what it was. Turned on the radio station. There was nothing about a launch or anything. So I don't know what it was. Um, And then another time I saw something similar. It's a triangle, but it was a single object. And it went just straight up really, really fast. And it made no sense. I had uh, similar experiences where it's just you observe it from a distance. You can't really tell what it is. One was I was a lot younger. It was a big green dot in the sky. And it was hovering there for a long time. It didn't look like a plane. I ran inside, grabbed binoculars, and I looked at it, and it did that crazy movement thing, kind of that ping pong stuff. Yeah. It moved around pretty erratically and then shot off. Weather balloon. And you couldn't really tell it was a weather balloon. You can't move that fast. <laughs> so there was that one. And then the other uh, crazier one, I was with a friend. We were driving off the freeway, and you see, you know how the wall usually has a couple lights? Sure. In, in sequence, some of the lights popped. They, like, exploded, like a surge of uh, power or electricity or something. Pop, pop, pop. And then I kind of ducked my head out, you know, out of the window. I was like, what the hell was that? And then you see that big white light just kind of vroom, like oh take my. off straight into the air. And I asked my friend, did you see that? And he said, yeah, I saw that. It's the light, you know, just moved uncontrolled. It just took off like that. So that was crazy. It was the visibility was low. I was driving. It was tough to really was see there what a it was. sonic boom. 
There was no sonic. You know, it, I I thought it felt like it moved the car a little bit, as oh. if it like you know whooshed by us or something. <laughs> so it was just one of those things. I mean, you can't really pin it down, but. Those are my two UFO experiences. It was but something. There you go. Uh, if you have any UFO experiences of yourself, send them to us. We'd love to hear. Oh, them. yeah. All right. Thanks, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. All right. That's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment. Give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.